Welcome to the Paperback Show. My name is Ricky Lee Grove, and today's episode is the first of a series of podcasts focusing on classic paperbacks. Our choice this week is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. What is a classic paperback? It's a paperback publication that has had a major impact on American, and in this case, worldwide, culture. Part of the classic status is the paperback's longevity. Man's Search for Meaning has never been out of print in paperback. It is still part of many high school and college reading lists and is read by young and old alike. Originally published in German as Man's Search for Meaning, an introduction to logotherapy, in 1947, and then in English, 1959, as From Death Camp to Existentialism. (laughs) Awful title. The first paperback edition came out in 1963 as simply Man's Search for Meaning. This edition was published by Pocket Books. Now, a revised paperback edition was published in 1997 with additional material. I believe it was simply a lecture where Frankel expanded on logotherapy. Man's Search for Meaning is part memoir and part essay on a specific psychological theory called logotherapy. Frankel, along with many other Jewish people, was rounded up and shipped to Theresienstadt with his wife. He was there for two years working with people who had mental disorders, helping to prevent suicides. He was transferred to Auschwitz, where he spent two days and three nights, narrowly avoiding the gas chamber there. He grew sick with typhus and was transferred to another camp because of it, and because he was a doctor. He spent his time there digging ditches, mostly. He survived the camps, even though millions of others did not and wrote about his experience in the first part of Man's Search for Meaning. This first part of the book details his use of his mind and his attitude to cope with the unbelievably bleak conditions of the camp. He was already a skilled therapist when he arrived at the camp with a manuscript of his first book. This manuscript was confiscated and destroyed at the camp. He also lost his father at that same Theresienstadt camp due to starvation. But he didn't despair. Using his observations of the behavior of other camp inmates and noting his own emotional reactions, he used these insights to cope with the ever-present possibility of death. That, and some luck, helped him survive. In the second part of Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel lays out the essential ideas of what he calls logotherapy. His theme in this therapy was that the meaning of life is found in every moment of living, even when that living is under difficult circumstances. The Library of Congress and the Book of the Monk Club listed Man's Search for Meaning as one of the top ten most influential books published in the United States. And at the time of Viktor Frankl's death in 1997, His book had sold over 10 million copies and was translated into 24 different languages. It's astonishing. I think one of the many things that makes this such an extraordinary book is that Viktor Frankl not only observes his life and those of others in the camp from a psychological perspective, but he also continues his analysis of inmates after the camp was liberated. His logotherapy attempts to not only deal with those inmates with disillusionment and despair after the camps, but with anyone who despairs 
and feels lost. Helping people find a meaning for their lives was his life's work. This was part of his incredible skills in suicide prevention. At one point in his early manhood, he worked at the Vienna Psychiatric Hospital and started a program on suicide prevention at the end of the college term for students. This was a time when grades came out and some committed suicide because of their low grades. In the first year of the program, there were no suicides by students. It was the first time in German history. Incredible. Mr. Frankel writes in the introduction to Man's Search for Reading that he wrote the book in 1946 over the course of nine days. He used his memories of Auschwitz camp to lead into the subject of his original manuscript on logotherapy that was destroyed at the camp. The first edition in hardback was in German. It was published in 1946 or 47. Ah. The English hardback edition came out in 1959 and was published by Beacon Press. The title was From Death Camp to Existentialism, A Psychiatrist's Path to a New Therapy, later changed to Man's Search for Meaning. The pocketbook's paperback of Man's Search for Meaning, published in 1963. This was a time when young people in the United States were looking for alternatives to traditional culture and ideas. The book influenced many people and perhaps led to the rise of humanistic psychology that moved away from Freud's traditional model of the mind. In addition to Man's Search, Fankel wrote 33 other books, but none were as popular as Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel also went on an extended lecture tour to colleges. Many therapists got their insight and inspiration from those lectures. Despite the success and influence of Man's Search for Meaning, the book and the author are not without their critics. Some Holocaust historians question the book's idea of making the camp manageable through positive thinking and hope. But we'll talk more about this in our discussion, which follows. In the next section of the podcast, we'll be talking with Lauren Elise Daniels, a writer and editor, about the paperback edition of Man's Search for Meaning, by Viktor Frankl. After this musical interlude, we'll be talking to Lauren, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Paperback Show, the second half. In this section, we'll discuss Viktor Frankl's great book, Man's Search for Meaning, with author and editor Lauren Elise Daniels. Lauren is a New Englander. <laughs> Lauren is a New Englander living in Australia for over 20 years. That's a story in itself. Lauren Elise Daniels is an awarded poet, editor, and author. Her novel, an allegory written for adults dealing with trauma, Serpent's Wake, A Tale for the Bitten, a fantastic novel, by the way, listed with Singapore's Half the World Literati Award and is a notable work with the HWA's Mental Health Initiative. She's an editor for over 100 titles, Lauren directs Brisbane Writers Workshop in Australia. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Ricky. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, we're both excited. I remember we met at the HWA in the car on the way to the HWA uh, Stoker Convention. That's the Horror Writers Convention. And um, at one point we were talking, I told you about the paperback show and we're telling you that we were doing a classic paperback section and 
what book would you recommend? And without hesitation, you immediately said Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yes. That was right, at the, right in your head. So yes. I want you to tell me a little bit about when you first discovered Man's Search for Meaning and what was your reaction to it? Yes, thank you. Um, and that was in Pittsburgh, by the way. So hat tip to, to Pittsburgh. It was wonderful to meet Hello, you there. Hello, Pittsburgh. Uh, it was 1988. So I've been actually I've been reading this book for 35 years off and on. I do. Mm. I do go back to it routinely. And I was 17 years old and um, studying a psychology degree. And it just it just absolutely floored me with its wisdom and its truth. And I knew that I was encountering a master here. Um, there were a couple of, of points in this where I, he has a line where he says, life in the concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. And mm. I feel that that was directly inviting us into a space to have a further understanding of what he brought home with him. Um, and he has this other line, which I think is perfect and, and really, I think helped establish the foundation for my, for my adulthood, where he says, it did not matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. And that mm. kind of harkens with what Kennedy said in his speeches as well. But this this invitation to live differently, to see differently, um, I, I have to say that's, that's what struck me first. Um, there's another line, too, where he references his, his fellow uh, prisoners in the camp and he said they did not want to suffer for nothing and I feel like every time we read Frankel's work and work like it they don't suffer for nothing mm -hmm. there's wisdom and humanity that's shared mm -hmm. um as as arduous it, as it is and I know that when I went to revisit this work I always have that trepidation that resistance at first of knowing where I have that space I have to enter yeah um but and you you just kind of work through that and you you still meet Frankel in the space because it's such an important and um, just foundational dialogue I think he's having with us and continues yeah. to have with us. It's how many millions yeah. of copies you know have been sold and how many millions of students has he called to this space? So I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for that. What well, do you remember? What edition was that you um, when you first read it? Was it a hardback or a paperback? It was a paperback. Uh, I purchased it from the, of course, the school, um, the school, uh, you know, the book service there, uh, 1988. And I think it's, uh, it's the 1984 edition. Hmm. So, yes. Yeah, I had the same reaction to the book myself. I thought I had read it before, but I got it confused with a Carl Jung, uh, Carl Jung book. And so this was my first time reading it. And I was just knocked out. I thought it was an incredible, incredible book. Um, very inspiring, very fascinating. Uh, the thought process, the, the religious and philosophical ideas behind it are extraordinary. It, it's mm. amazing to me uh, that the book has never been out of print. And that mm. in the recent COVID um, crisis that we had, his publisher, Beacon, uh, the current publisher of it, talked that it had a renewed a renaissance, even though it been, had been selling steadily as part of college courses and high school courses and, and just in general. Um, but it had a particular resonance because of the 
COVID crisis. And I thought that was really interesting because yes, Anderson Cooper had an interesting quote. He said, this is a book I reread a lot. It gives me hope. It gives me a sense of strength. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'm not surprised to hear what you said about the COVID resurgence of, of, of uh, readership after COVID. COVID was a trauma for the world where people kind of want to push past it and forget about it. But I know that uh, you know, in, in many personal cir circles, people lost jobs, uh, they lost family members, right. they were isolated, people really deeply struggled. And I do think it has an echo of trauma that all of us are still kind of processing the fear mm. of not knowing how severe the virus would be or how it would affect someone. And then the threat of long COVID and the threat of respirators, all of it, it makes perfect sense to me that this book is having a resurgence now. And I look at, at young people too. I mean, for us, it was the threat of nuclear war. That's what we were worried about. Yeah, but for yeah. young people, they have this climate anxiety, this existential climate anxiety yeah. and fear of fascism and violence and otherness and being targeted. And it makes so much sense for me for them to be reading it as well, because Frankel outlines the symptoms of trauma um, well before uh Gosh, her name is Judith Herman. She wrote a book called Trauma and Recovery, and it was touted in the in the 90s, 80s, 90s. It was touted as one of the greatest works since Freud, where she highlights and outlines trauma. But this is well before that, where he goes through the experiences that he observed as a psychiatrist in these conditions and tells us about post-traumatic stress disorder. He mm. talks about provisional existence, which in the DSM is, is a foreshortened future. He talks about the why me, he talks about apathy and humor, you know, dark humor, especially right. as self-preservation, the loss of values where you make a choice for your own survival. And then you deal with the guilt of that. He even talks about Schopenhauer's negative happiness, you know, freedom from suffering where people who've been through horrific times find happiness in that moment of reprieve, which might look, um, it might look simple to someone else, but it's, it's deep and refreshing for people who've known this, this realm of suffering. One of the other bits, I know I'm going on a bit. I was no, so please. excited to I, I'm you. fascinated <laughs> with what you're, what you're saying. Oh, well, he also talks, and this, this to me is a goldmine. He talks about the people in the camp who had a rich intellectual inner life, people who had read or had studied and how that could save them, where they had a uh, Rilke, the poet, he references so many beautiful minds in this as well. Uh, the poet Rilke says that you have a treasure trove within you. And that insight for people with trauma, how reading and I mean, he cites film and nature as ways to, to just to find spaces of reprieve within yourself. He also talks about the real versus the unreal, uh, the unreal, where, where a person who's known deep trauma feels that no normal life can become ghostly. I've worked mm -hmm. with a fair number of veterans and they've said to me things like when they've come back um, from a tour that it looks like everyone's a ghost and they've lost their sense of present and they feel um, like they can't connect to the now or that this is a world where they don't yet belong. And, and that's another point that uh, Frankel makes. Um, once free, the prisoners didn't know how to connect with the world yeah. again, and it took them time and they needed support through that process. So yeah. all of those points are just tremendously helpful for people who understand or know trauma. Yeah. I like the quote that he wrote in the preface to the paperback edition I have, which is uh, the 90s. 
He said, um, I thought the book would be helpful to people who are prone to despair. Yes. Yes. And I think that in itself is the answer or one of the main answers as to why it's become such a massively popular book and why people reread it because life is rough. Life is hard. Yes. Life, In fact, the Buddhists say life is suffering. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be recharged. And oftentimes we do it through friends, friendship and love, but also books help us do that. And this is one of them, I think. Yes, absolutely. He has a quote that that um, aligns with that, where he says, tears bear witness to the greatest courage, the courage to suffer. Mm. And that instead of, because our culture wants us to resist suffering, ignore it, push past it, right. get over it, all right. of that. But this is an invitation to be present. And what I've noticed in my work, because when you're an editor, especially for memoir, you end up spending time with people who are telling difficult stories. And what I've learned is people respond so much more to that, you know, that notion of compassion where you sit with them to suffer with is the literal translation of compassion. You just sit with them in that space and hold it don't give them advice. You don't tell them, at least you're not dealing with this. You know, you don't, you give them rubbish, (laughs) rubbish, uh, psychological, uh, feedback. You just hold the space. And I feel that, that that's one of the points of wisdom that Frankl's delivering here. Yeah. He was an extraordinary person. Um, the first English paperback edition, it was published in 1963, 10 years after the first English hardback, I think a couple things happened in that 10-year interval. One is uh, the publisher found that they had a runaway bestseller, which they didn't expect, and neither did uh, uh, Frankel. Um, And they didn't want to go right into paperback because they make more money on a hardback than they do in a paperback. I think that's the reason why there was a 10-year gap. Frequently, we uh, look at books come out in hardback, and then a year later, or two years later, the paperback comes out. But this was different. And I think that length had an impact on its publication in 63. One is the Adolf Eichmann trial was being televised at the time in the 50s. And many people around the world did not really know about the extent of the Holocaust. And that uh, uh, televised um, proceedings brought home just how profound the shock was to the Jewish culture and history, but also to humanity in general. And also there was a um, the rise of a alternative ideas about that, that were resistant to Freud's idea of pleasure being the center of uh, pleasure and death being the center of uh, the poles of of psychology. So in 63, do you think this book, because of its timing, had a greater impact on 60s culture than it would have had it been published earlier? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I love this question um, because I think timing is everything for a good book. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And when you 
look at what was happening for the world at this time with, you know, in, in the U.S. with Vietnam and with uh, protests and, um, you know, the doors naming themselves after Aleister Crowley's The Doors of Perception. You've yeah. got Carlos Castaneda's psychedelics. You have, and at the heart of this is the question of why are we doing this? Why are we doing anything? And that's Frankel's I mean, his his core theme is if a man has a has a why he can bear any how and he quotes Nietzsche on that. And I think that question of why am I getting in a suit? You know, why am I reenacting Leave it to Beaver in my household? Why right. am I behaving like a Stepford wife? All of those questions um, are included in this dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I think it. Um, one thing that I discovered was that, in addition to writing more books with similar themes on logotherapy, and by the way, um, something I want to say earlier, quickly, the book is divided into two sections. I mentioned that in the first half of this podcast. The first section is an account of a memoir of his uh, concentration camp experiences and his experiences trying to help other people and cope with it himself. And then the second half is a, a logotherapy, which was the therapy that he uh, developed, uh, logotherapy in a nutshell. Those were the two parts of it. But he also supplemented the incredible book with a, an amazing um, speaking tour all over the United States. Um, on YouTube, you can, there are many recordings of people who uh, recorded the entire presentation. And he was a passionate, exciting presenter who was just completely, utterly convincing. So many of the early psychologists, the humanistic psychologies, the Fritz Perls and the uh, other psychologies uh, attended those lectures or read the book and they were influenced by it. And they moved away from the Freudian and Adler and Jung model to a more humanistic psychology, yes. which led to a, an explosion of that type of therapy in the 70s and 80s. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That human-centered model and uh, leading then into things like narrative therapy, which I think Michael White, an Australian, um, coined that phrase where people could just tell their stories. Yeah. Um, it's not the same as psychoanalytic therapy. It's very different. So this, I, I absolutely agree, I think. And isn't it wonderful to step back and see how wave after wave is created of thought and changing and challenging our culture and our approaches to suffering and to life? I, I really, I can see that fabric that, that um, it just continues, really. Yeah, yeah, very profound. So it's not only the ideas in the book that were influential, but his own physical presentation of them, I think mm -hmm. that moved a lot of people, something that uh, isn't often recognized in uh, his history. I'm so disappointed there hasn't been a major biography of him. There, it's really, it's really a shame that I know there have been studies of him and academic studies, but a, a popular biography is long overdue for him. I think you're absolutely right. I want to ask you a quick, quick question. Um, Frankel's idea, which is the central idea of logotherapy, is finding meaning in your life. Like logo itself means word or meaning. Um, do you agree with that idea 
I mean, the phrase uh, is often used on the cover of the paperbacks and hardbacks saying that it's a classic tribute to hope from the Holocaust. Um, what do you think of that idea? Do you, do you agree that meaning is the essential part of life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are so many ways to answer this. It's such a good question. And I think it's a good question for, for readers and listeners to, to ponder as well. I know that in my life, when I've seen a person lose his or her meaning, they devolve, they can degrade into addictions, they can lose themselves mm -hmm. in, in a, an innumerable ways. And he so emphasized, he gives us so many examples in the book of ways that people retained that sense of meaning. And sometimes it came down to their friends where they would make choices to keep friends alive. And I, there's even this wonderful moment in the story where uh, there was a potato theft where uh, someone had broken into stores and stolen potatoes. And a couple of the prisoners knew who it was. And word came down that if they didn't, you know, they needed to turn in the thief and the thief would hang, but they refused. And so nobody had dinner that night. Nobody ate and they were so hungry. And this is, this is such a beautiful um, moment. It's so potent that their loyalty outweighed their hunger, which was tremendous and unimaginable for most of us. Right. Um, and he cites this moment where he just felt so weak and cold and hungry and exhausted. And they were angry at the person who, who stole the potatoes. But this senior block warden um, bolsters his comrades in that moment. He can hear them. They're sighing and groaning and tired. And he gave them a speech. He gave them a little talking to, a little support to help them get through that night. <laughs> and I think that kind of meaning, you know, of looking out for each other and, and digging deep when it counts, that to me is just laced through the book in so many different ways. And that speaks to us now. I mean, that was one of the challenges of COVID where maybe if you had people who were really extroverted and suddenly they found themselves isolated and they really derived a lot of meaning and purpose from being with colleagues, friends, students, whatever it was for them, right? you know, their meaning was really challenged. So it is, it's a way back. Another Another uh, example is to think about, uh, you know, this as an editor where someone is writing um, a memoir, what I'll say to them is it's not so much uh, about the list of things that you did or accomplishments or achievements. It's about what it meant or even, you know, I work with people who do travel writing and I'll say it's not about all the great places you should, you know, go to get a great bowl of pasta. It's about what does this place mean to you? And that's the big difference mm. between, you know, an autobiography, which is somebody famous where they just write a list or a memoir. It's all about meaning. So Frankl yeah. absolutely nailed it. If you read a, you know, if you read a, a message from a friend who's doing a tour and it could be the most spectacular place that they are visiting, if they don't tell you what it meant and they just give you a list of all the stuff they did and say it was stunning or beautiful or interesting, it doesn't, it's forgettable. Yeah. So when a person moves yeah. into that place of what it meant, it, it suddenly grows in authenticity that affects the reader as well as the writer. The writer is actually transformed yeah. by the writing. Yeah. Yes. You know, one thing that I really appreciated about reading the book was that it's so well written. It's so readable, you know, aside mm -hmm. from the profundity of ideas and the ins inspirational tone to it and the sense of hope for 
in the worst possible situation. It was just a really good uh, writing. It was really gripping. What did you mm. think of the writing style in Man's Search for Meaning? Yes. And first, we have to uh, just repeat that fact that he wrote this in nine days. And mm. that is a tremendous feat. And there, there are a couple of points I need to make. Um, I've worked with, as I mentioned, I've worked with people who've constructed those memoirs. And one of the things a lot of people do is they'll write it in a circular thematic way. And a publisher will often ask them to shift it to a more chronological, like a progressive way. And I see that he struggles with that, where he kind of moves back and forth in time a bit. And um, I think some, you know, some people might be, you know, a bit annoyed with that or have a problem with it. But, you know, ultimately, what you have here is a person who has to go back to trauma and unpack it. And there's mm. a there's a feverishness to the to the writing. It feels like he got it out as quickly as he could, because it can pull you down if if anyone's you know written about their most horrific moments or the their most challenging days. It will um, it affects them deeply. It's it's something that I recommend people get support if they're planning on doing that and they need it. Um, sometimes you can have physical release as well when you're writing your life out and you might get back pain or you might come down with a horrific flu or something. It, it really, it's a, a quite a process. So to know that he did this, that he he entered into that space again and, and wrote it all down as quickly as he could for the rest of us to read, uh, I think it's tremendous. Um, I think there's an authenticity that just yeah, trusts yeah. him. Yeah. You know, and um, and this actually leads us right into that that next question you have about um, you know people who who found fault with his work, and I think what what people need to understand is straight out of the out of the out of the um, like straight on that first page he has a disclaimer and he says. I'm a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. This is just my story. I don't detail a lot of the horrors. If you want to read those, there are plenty of resources for that. Um, and his personality is is one that says, just trust me, I'm, I'm going to take you someplace. And I really believe that that um, is what creates that that narrative that you're talking about, that you mm -hmm. referenced, that it was such a gripping just follow him. And when he mentions the, the people as well, the characters that he encounters, he gives you just enough that you can perceive them and you can, you can touch something of their inner essence. Um, like the woman who was dying and was looking out at a chestnut tree. And he, he said, he asked her about it. And she said, she, she talks to the tree and the tree talks back to her. And he was worried. He thought she was having delusions and she was hallucinating, but in speaking with her, he understood that it was a more of a, it was a spiritual encounter. She was having just days away from, from leaving mm. this world. And it was actually quite uh, enriching for her. And it, it changed him as well. It, it, that, that encounter expanded him a bit and it's so short. It's really just a little paragraph that he gives us about his encounter. So I absolutely agree that the, the, the style is just gripping and takes yeah, you. It's very, along. very, readable and interesting i mean even if you don't get all of the ideas uh if you're not a a good reader it's still quite quite a moving experience well one thing that i did become aware of was that um that was slightly annoying was that there was just a hint of self-aggrandizement in it um 
there was a, a, a psychologist, Lawrence Langer, said the real hero of man's search for meaning is not man, but Viktor Frankl. Um, he says that somehow Viktor Frankl, with his theorizing, makes it seem like the if the other inmates had been able to think the way he thought they would have survived. Mm. Now, that's a vast oversimplification of what he said, yeah. but I think. The rise of Holocaust studies um, allowed uh, researchers and experts to access archives that described the uh, uh, camp life in more vivid detail than we had in 1963 when the first English and 1953 when the first English language of this uh, book came out. And they've been able to trace his actual experiences through the through the camps and one thing i didn't realize is i thought the entire book he was at auschwitz and he wasn't mm -hmm. he was for two years at the theresienstadt which was a kind of showpiece for the red cross not to say that any concentration camp was better than any other but he served as a doctor there helping people mm -hmm. keeping them from committing suicide and he's only spent two days in auschwitz before he was transferred to another uh, place uh, because he had typhus and he was helping people who also had typhus at this other place. So his experience in the concentration camp was not quite what he says it was. I'm not saying that his experiences weren't genuine, but he sort of implies that he was able to cope, that, that somehow concentration camps are experiences manageable if you had the inner life. And of course he had the inner life to do that because he was such an extraordinary person. There was one, one quote I wanted to run past you for your reaction, by the way, we're um, we only have about six minutes left. So okay. let's start to wrap this up before we get to the paperback covers. But anyway, he says in the, in the introduction to uh, the 1963 edition, the consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things and cannot be shaken by camp life. But how many free men, let alone prisoners, possess it? Mm. Well, by implication, he's saying he possessed it. Right. You see what I mean? Right. So I do. It was only a tiny little put off, just very, very tiny, because so much of what he had to say and his actual actions of helping other people was far more important than his own ego as a part of it. But I, I think that's fair to make that criticism. What do you think? Gosh, it's such a tricky one because I know that um, he's a psychiatrist. He's so learned. He, I mean, he's quoting what uh, Spinoza, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Rilke. He's he's like drawing from all these these voices to create his his narrative. And at the same time, I can I can hear the validity of that observation. I can. Um, I, I didn't come away thinking that if a person could just work out their inner stuff that they could survive. I, I think because I, early in the piece, he really outlines how damnable a situation, like That's how right. psychologically damnable yeah. things could be. So if you put your shoes in a row, uh, you know, and you do what they ask you to do, someone's going to knock them out of right. the row and then beat you for it. So it was like this 
this rigor, this, you know, this incredibly abusive, just unstable rigor that people face. And I felt like he did a good job painting that picture. So if you had a very solid inner world, that's the very thing they were trying to break, you know, every moment of every day. So, you know, but I, I do, I hear, I think because I did two years of psych, I kind of hear that psych professor. I hear that <laughs> solid ego, you know, that yeah. you kind of need if you're steering people in and out of dark places. So I, I took it with a grain of salt as far as that goes. And I think also because I grew up in the seventies and eighties and, and was exposed to so much, you know, through my education yeah. about yeah. this history, because we had the resources by then I had, I think, I didn't have a softened version of, of right. his experiences. I, I saw it for what he was pointing to. Okay. Well, let's go uh, quickly close up with a, a look at some of the paperback covers. The 1963 pocket edition, which was the first paperback is a picture of a seashore um, looking at it. Uh, and, and they cut out the second part of the title was an introduction to logotherapy and just kept it man's search for meaning. Now, the idea of a seashore being illustrating it is fine, but it completely leaves out the concentration camp part mm-hmm. of his whole narrative. So they were obviously trying to appeal to people who were poetic and people who, I mean, who, who wanted to read something about great thinking and great thoughts. You know what I mean? It was Mm. an odd choice to illustrate it that way. The 1969 Washington Square Press, the next one, is an interesting graphic. Um, 70s graphics were really big. It was a box with four sides. Uh, It was a bit more appropriate. It included the, um, the, the subtitle, um, and it makes a little more sense. When we get to 1970, though, that's the first one that has a very stark black cover with a flame burning it. That's probably one of the most appropriate covers mm. uh, that we could see because of the flame, the, the hope, hope springs eternal, as they say. What did you think of those yes. three covers? Oh, I, I agree with you completely. I think the third one makes the most sense to me. The The first one feels like it could be a, a philosophy i know or a, a rod McEwen poet poetry collection yes. you know yes the second one looks like the kind of imagery they were using for films you know where they yeah. have the as purple white uh, aqua blue and uh, kind of ochre color where it really feels like those graphics from the film the movies you know at the time it's strange i guess out of the box they're trying to think outside the box i'm not sure yeah. what was happening there but i think the the next one with the the flame makes the most sense makes the most sense the 1971 cover and by the way all of these covers will be on the paperback show blog so you can follow along if you'd like uh, the next one is a recapitulation of the box idea, although it centers upon a person, a box within a box, the complexity of psychology. It's an interesting cover on the front, but I think it's one of those that would appeal more to um, intellectuals, maybe the college crowd. I think that's who they were selling it to. Not particularly good, but I, it's appropriate, I guess. Um, then about 10 years later, we have Victor Frankel appearing on the cover of the book himself with an interesting blue image of him with his name uh, being the largest type face of it, uh, type size. 
and then Man's Search for Meaning, Introduction to Logotherapy Underneath in White. I like that cover graphically. It makes a lot of sense because it focuses on him. What did you think of those two covers? Yes, um, the the uh, the boxes one feels like psychedelics to me. All the colors, the pink, the green. Yeah, <laughs> it just feels like it. I think I had a pair of pants like that. In the <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> but the, I think the blue, like because that's the copy that I have as well. Uh, the blue portrait of the thinking, you know, Frankel. I think that really says a lot about him. He's, you know, his thoughtfulness. I, I like that one as much, yeah. as much as you do, I think. Yeah. So let's move to the uh, 2008 cover. I believe that's also pocket as well. That's the picture of the bird. There's a small bird, like a sparrow, on a piece of barbed wire with some of the bit of the camp barbed wire on the bottom. Um, I think that's a fascinating choice for cover. Uh, the bird has long been an interesting symbol of, of um, sort not every bird, but this particular type of bird. What do you think that is? A sparrow, maybe, or a? I think it's a swallow. It looks like a, a barn swallow? swallow to me. Yeah, mm. a symbol of hope, you know. And then, in the most inconspicuous places, inconspicuous of places, sitting on a piece of barbed wire. I think yes. to me, that is probably the best cover of all of them. What's your take on that? I love that cover as well, because I know that several films have used the bird on the wire, you know, where you have different POW conditions or, or uh, concentration uh, conditions, and you can see the bird on the wire as uh, it's so symbolic for, you know, there are so many cultures where if there, a bird appears in the house after someone has passed, it means that their soul is visiting you, or it can also be psychological where you may be trapped in the grayness of this place, but a part of you can be free, you know? Like, so I, I think it's gorgeous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really great. If you were to get one, if you're not necessarily a collector, I would recommend picking up this pocketbook edition uh, from 2008. Now, the 2023 edition, we seem to be, <laughs> we seem to be returning to the very first one in 63, which was a yes. picture of the, the beach and the sunset. But now we're in a sort of cloudy, endless, infinite um, uh, vision with man's search for, Frankel is gone. There's no image of Frankel there. Um, man's search for meaning, um, and then Frankel's in black. Um, pretty generic. I, yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't match the complexity of the book, the uniqueness of the book. And it also makes it into something which I am annoyed with, which is turning this book and his ideas into self-help. I was just going to say that it looks like it belongs on the self-help shelf. It's yes. purple. It's dreamy. It's airbrushy. It yeah. feels like it's in that or personal development. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a shame, but I think some of that has happened to his books in the last decade. They become part of the self-help positive thinking movement. Now, there is an element of that in the book, but it's far more complex than, than just 
helping you cope with us you know bad grades at school or a spin mm. class you know to get better personally motivate yourself um it's that kind of mediocrity of the middle class bourgeois sentimentality that is just very annoying so stay away from that cover that's a terrible cover yes it's a terrible so, cover i agree some of the main images we've seen illustrating this book have been a bird, flowers, seashore, clouds, and an infinite. All of them, I think, indicative of the publisher trying to sell it, package it in a certain way. I think when I think the covers that include either Frankel or some hint of the Holocaust are much more appropriate in terms of their design. You agree? Absolutely. Yes. Well, let's close out our discussion, and I sure have enjoyed it. I know we could talk for another hour easily on, on this topic. Um, I'd like to share uh, uh, one of the most significant quotes from the book, a, a quote that, that deeply affected me and made me see myself in the quote. And then you have a quote that you'd like to share at the end, and then we'll close out for you. Yes. This quote comes about, oh, halfway through it. Um, and he's talking about the concentration camp experience. And he says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. And now that is a lesson I did not get from my parents. And I had to learn it through experience and through reading. But it was a profound under, uh, imagining of how to cope with life. You can choose the way you interpret circumstances. It was so empowering to me. And I think that quote is the essence of the book for me. I think you're right. I think it's the essence of the book for me as well. That, that idea of you always have a choice. You can always choose how to respond to something, no matter how vile or horrific. And it's empowering for people to, to stand in that moment, that thought for a moment. You know, yeah. I, I'm totally aligned with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What's your uh, quote that you found so important? Well, this one's very different. And it was a surprise. I didn't expect for this uh, thought to stay with me for as long as it did. And I, a friend of mine, Jen Monahan, we were both psych students and we would quote this to each other. Um, and I think earlier in our conversation, I talked about what it's like to sit with someone and to just be in the space with them. And this is, this, I, this comes to me maybe once a week. So I'll just, I'll just read it to you. It's it's towards the middle as well. 64, page 64 of the blue covered edition, 1984. Mm. Um, and it says a man suffering and, and also the analogy to gas and the use of the word chamber is not lost on me. Mm. Um, a man suffering is similar to the behavior of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. And I took that when sometimes maybe if someone's frustrating you with their problem and it doesn't seem like that big a deal and you just want to say, well, right. at least you're not starving to death or whatever. Or but get over it. 
get over it. Exactly. And his stance, despite everything he witnessed firsthand, is to say even the minutiae, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali said, it's not the mountain that that conquers you. I'm paraphrasing. It's the pebble in your shoe. He (laughs) says, respect, uh, you know, it's he's saying uh, respect the little sufferings of another person because it's all consuming. You know, if someone tripped and fell, whereas someone else ends up in a body cast. And I think of that all the time. And it's like just picturing it, filling the whole being. I see that gives me that space not to judge them, you know? So that's, that is something that, and once you know that he's made that analogy, it stays with you forever. So warning. It's a wonderful (laughs) analogy. Yeah. I urge anybody listening to this podcast to get a hold of this book. It is an extremely important book. Um, Don't read it as self-help, read it as a memoir and a uh, uh, collection of ideas that came to a genius man. And Viktor Frankl certainly was a genius. He was one of those golden people that Plato refers to in the Republic um, to guide us, to teach us. Um, Just to point out, within five years from leaving the camps, he not only had written this extraordinary book, but he had gotten his doctorate from the University of Vienna. And he had a thriving practice in suicide prevention. Now, after that experience, most people in a camp, most people would just live in despair for the rest of their lives. This was a man who was indestructible, no matter what. He's the kind of example of humanity that we all need. And I'm so glad you recommended this book, uh, Lauren. By the way, you can get more information at the Victor E. Frankel Institute of America, which is thriving today. Um, I'll make a link to the, all of the covers. We'll do a gallery, a link to our references in our show notes. And uh, unless you have a last comment that you'd like to make, we'll close out the show. Just a tremendous thanks for wanting me to join you in the show and, and for choosing this book as well. So yeah. thank you, Ricky. Yeah. Well, I was impressed with your and out your immediate. There was no hesitation. You immediately said Man Search for Meaning by, by Victor Frankl. I said, okay. And you know, I, I thought I had read it, but I didn't. And so I'm so glad you recommended it. And I so so glad that I read it. Um you should read it too, listeners. Well, that's it. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for sharing your time with us today and your thoughts. Uh, You can get more information on Lauren. She has many different social media posts, um, our social media sites, her website, brisbanewriters.com. She has a Goodreads page, Facebook, uh, Twitter, or X now, Instagram and LinkedIn. All of those links will be at the show notes. And I urge you to read her excellent book, Serpent's Wake, A Tale for the Bitten. Um, there's you. a little, Thank I have a little shelf of books that are the books that I constantly go back to reread. I'll be adding Man's Search for Meaning and Serpent's Wake on that shelf. Oh my. Yes. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Lauren. We'll see you now. Thank you too.